Welcome to How My Country Works with your host, Stephen O'Shea, the podcast that rummages around the hoarder's basement of the global political system and pulls out insightful gems hidden way at the back. Each week, we delve into the fascinating world of a different country's politics so you can show off to your friends and maybe gain some slightly better understanding of just how those countries work. First up, landlocked in Central Asia with a population of around 37 million and functioning currently as a presidential democracy is Afghanistan. In June 1973, the then ruler of Afghanistan, King Mohammed Zaire Shah, travelled to Europe for a bit of R&R after an eye operation. Whilst there, his cousin, Mohammed Daoud Khan, staged an almost impressively bloodless coup and seized power. And so ended a royal dynasty of over two centuries, and almost as old as the current United States of America. Since then, the country has seen multiple invasions, dramatic wars, and a multitude of political systems. So where are we now, and how did we get here? A mere routine hospital trip doesn't begin to explain the complex cultural and political landscape that makes Afghanistan unique, and the focus of our inaugural episode. To help me dive a little bit deeper and pull out some of the insights and turning points is Professor Thomas Barfield, lecturer at Boston University and author of Afghanistan, A Cultural and Political History. Professor Barfield, welcome to the show. Thank you. So do you feel that this period of history really was the turning point for Afghanistan? Well, in retrospect, one could say that the overthrow of the king in 1973 looked like a turning point, but that's only from looking sort of 50 years back. Mm -hmm. I was in Kabul in 1973 when the king was overthrown. I woke up, I heard military music on the radio. Wow. So you were actually there. Yes, I was there. Yes. Um, but it was, it was relatively bloodless. And um, there were a few tanks on the streets, but nobody was, was killed. And the basic thing that you noticed was all the pictures of King Zaire Shah that had been in every shop, every government office. Overnight, they disappeared. The amazing thing was in two days, pictures of Daoud appeared everywhere. And I said, how is that possible? You know, well, it turned out he had been, he had been prime minister and the effective ruler of the country between sort of 1953 and 1964. And people told me, you never, you never throw away a picture of a ruler. He might come back. If, if, if he wasn't dead, keep his picture. And so sure enough, because I was wondering, how could they make so many pictures? They didn't. They had <laughs> Definitely better to play it safe, I suppose. Here. As it turned out, the, the problem was that people began to realize that Afghanistan's rulers could be replaced. This was a dynasty that had lasted 230 years, and the communists, the Islamists, and the others began to think, well, gee, if a king could get rid of his cousin, why couldn't we get rid of the president, which they did. There was a communist coup in 1978. Daoud was killed. And that was the real turning point in Afghanistan. From that point on, there's never been a stable government in Afghanistan. Until the communists came, somebody else came in and restored the order. So in 1978, when there was a communist revolution in Afghanistan, and then the Soviet Union invaded, that was the real turning point. The communists, by bringing in the Soviet Union, by bringing in an invasion, 
opened a Pandora's box of war that you could win a war, but you could never manage to restore peace. And we're unfortunately still in, in, in that uh, position of Afghanistan has not righted itself. But so it was relatively stable up until that point, because I think people generally have an idea of Afghanistan as almost constantly in turmoil. Do you think that's partly down to the broader independence of people in Afghanistan? Yes, there is. They're, they're very proud that it was a country that was never colonized. It was invaded, but never colonized. So it was never colonized like how India was, but the British did invade multiple times during their wars with Russia. Afghan culture, uh, questions of, of honor, independence, the, these are these are very strong values. So um, it's 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 a kind of a place where it doesn't have a, a peasant population that's subservient and waiting for instructions. Historically, most of the farmers in Afghanistan were subsistence farmers. They had little farms. They grew. They grew enough to support themselves. But this is one of the things that allowed them to be politically independent. It's one of the things that allowed them to survive wars and stuff. These are people that never called 911 when they had a problem because, number one, in the old days, they didn't have a telephone. Number two is there were no police, and you didn't want them around if there were. Communities were expected to solve their own problems. Even today, 90% of the disputes in Afghanistan are not handled by the courts. They're handled by mediation and arbitration. You find a mediator. You find a respected elder. Both sides give their story, and the case is done. It's enforced because the community says, well, that was a fair decision. You're obligated to do it. And if you want to live in that community, you got to do it. Do you think that's why the government currently struggles to create a more concrete state? Well, the the Afghan government in Kabul is, is, is ideally wanted to be like the French, that Kabul would be like Paris, which it sort of is. It's the political center of power. But the Afghan constitution, which was written up by the king in 1964, was restored to a large extent. They didn't call it king, they called it president, but... It's one of the most highly centralized constitutions in the world. Yeah, you have a parliament. Yeah, you have courts. But the president of Afghanistan appoints every single governor, sub-governor, and district official. So it's a presidential system like France, where there's a president who's the head of state, but there's also a parliament that crafts the laws. So different from what people might understand from, say, a US president, way, way more centralized power. It's a highly centralized government. And the Afghans in Kabul say, well, we need to do that because this is a very fractured country. And if we didn't have this, it would fall apart. Um, they managed to convince the international community in 2004 that, yeah, you know, we're worried it's going to fall apart. They had just seen Yugoslavia. But if you do not have to compromise with anybody in the country, then it's a very risky kind of, if, if you've got a very powerful and competent ruler, that controls everything, things can run really well. But if you have an idiot, they don't run so well. Not only that, 
If everything is run by cobble down to the appointment and payment of local elementary school teachers, then if the government in cobble fails, the country fails. Of course. How do you feel like the different tribes in Afghanistan actually influence this? It's a multi-ethnic society and has always been a multi-ethnic society. We assume that if it's multi-ethnic, that it'll fall apart. That every, everybody wants to have his own country. That's the Yugoslav model. But Afghanistan is an older form of ethnicity in which ethnic groups fight for hierarchical dominance. It's no fun to be dominant if there's only your own people to boss around. You want to boss other people around. So what we find in Afghanistan is people sort of jockeying for positions within an ethnic hierarchy. And since the mid-18th century, the dominant group has been um, the Pashtuns, who are located, there's probably more in Pakistan, northwest frontier in Baluchistan in Pakistan than there are in Afghanistan. But they probably, although I always say they're majority, they're probably 40% of the population, mostly in the east and in the south. And the next largest group are the Tajiks. And if the Pashtuns are tribally organized, that is, they claim descent from various founders, they can give you genealogies and stuff. The Tajiks are Persian speakers, mostly Sunni Muslims, who are organized on the basis of where they live. You know, not tribal. There's no Mr. Tajik who they're descended from. That is historically the population that is the most literate, handles trade, because Persian is the lingua franca of Afghanistan. And then we have the Turkish groups in the north, relatively small groups today, maybe 10% of the population, 15. They used to be the dominant groups in Afghanistan when Central Asia was ruled by Turks and Mongols. Before the Pashtuns came to power in 1747, a thousand years before that, Afghanistan was ruled by Turco-Mongolian people. In the center of the country, you find Hazaras. They're Shias. Some people say they're descendants of the Mongols. Hazaras say, no, we're something else. But their difference is, is largely religious. So what we've got are these, these different groups, and these different groups, none of them have tried to break up the country. So it's roughly 40% Pashtun, 30% Tajik, 15% Hazar, and 10% Turk, with some others in there as well, obviously. But just so people understand, these are different tribes, but they're all Muslim in terms of their religion. They sort of fight with each other for their rights within a multi-ethnic political situation. There's no idea of of sort of ethnic cleansing in a a sense, because it's a multi-ethnic society. And every group has, each group not only has different things that they sort of do well, but each one is a majority of plurality in one part of the country. So there's no group that's, there's never been a census done in Afghanistan, so we don't have the actual figures. But the Pashtuns may be a plurality, but the Hazaras are an absolute majority in the central part of Afghanistan. Tajiks around Kabul or around western Afghanistan, they're a majority. Turks are a majority in parts of the northwest. So each group has a home where they can be in charge, where they're at home. So that's, that's, in most other places you say, well, if they're a majority, 
then wouldn't you want to join with Uzbekistan? Wouldn't you want to join with Tajikistan? As far as the Afghans are concerned, no, we wouldn't want to do that. And we wouldn't want to split up because little countries get eaten by bigger countries. I've written, they're kind of like poker players. If they lose a hand, they think, well, there's another hand to come. They refuse to divide up the table because then there'd be no poker game. <laughs> I like the poker analogy as a bit of a player myself. So no one flips over the table just because they're losing. Um, taking things back to the beginning, I suppose, uh, when would you actually say Afghanistan as we know it was founded? Actually, the modern Afghanistan is 1747 with uh, there's, there's a large Iranian empire ruled by this Turk called Nader Shah Afshar. He's the one that conquers Iran, he conquers today's Afghanistan, and actually conquers Delhi. He's the one that brings back the peacock throne and all these jewels from India. He has an Afghan bodyguard, this guy Ahmed Khan. On the night that Nader Shah was assassinated, this guy took half his army and his treasure and moved to Kandahar. That is the foundation of the Afghan state that ruled Kashmir, it ruled Delhi, it ruled Punjab, it ruled parts of Iran. And then it began shrinking. Wow, that's a pretty bad bodyguard. But that is today's Afghanistan. But what it is, it's got four pieces. The eastern Pashtun parts, that was the sort of the homeland of this founding dynasty. But the western part, which was Persian-speaking, the northern part, which was Turkish-speaking, um, these, these provinces go back to the ancient Persian Empire. If you look at the, at the main regions of Afghanistan, you will, find, you will find they were the founding provinces of the Persian Empire in the 6th century BC. Empires come and go, but places like Herat, Balkh, Kabul, Kandahar. They were there when Alexander the Great came. They were there when Alexander left. They were there when Genghis Khan came. He destroyed them. And they came to life again in the generations that followed. So these regions of Afghanistan are remarkably stable. Today, they're part of Afghanistan. At other times, they were parts of different empires. The territories of Afghanistan could be, sometimes Afghanistan was a frontier between different empires. The north was part of the Uzbeks in Central Asia. The west was part of Iran. The east was part of the Mughal Empire in India. Today, for historical reasons, these places are together under an Afghan state. So a loose timeline would see these places fall under Alexander the Great's empire in 360 BC, Genghis Khan in the 13th century, and then come together as Afghanistan in 1747, making it older than the US or even Australia. But to talk about the history of Afghanistan is to misunderstand history in that part of the world. The history, the ancient history, you find in the regions. That has continuity. They're like Lego blocks, okay? And we're currently looking at one Lego block design, but in the past, 
those Lego blocks were put in different designs. The thing is, they were always independent Lego blocks. I mean, that's a lot more complicated than my Lego building as a kid, but I really think it's useful to imagine the different regions like that. So in summary, I think it's useful to see Afghanistan as this collection of regions that have existed for hundreds of years. This then goes some way to explain their regional independence and differing cultures. And one of the reasons why the current centralized system with an upper and lower house and a president struggles so much to maintain order and effectively fight the Taliban. So one question I want to ask everyone on the show is what's a holiday event or festival that is really unique to Afghanistan? And I guess what makes it so special? It would be Nauru's, the Persian New Year's, which, which is the spring equinox. The th- interesting thing about that is the place that it's celebrated best in Afghanistan, like 100,000 people show up on Nauru's is in the city of Mazar-Sharif in northern Afghanistan. And when you look at it, it celebrates Nauru's New Year, the Persian New Year. It's not an Islamic holiday. It's an ancient Iranian solar holiday. But the celebration takes place in the city of Mazar-Sharif at the shrine of Ali, an Islamic shrine. And at that shrine, the highlight is raising a pole. It's sort of, it's almost this ancient shamanistic kind of thing, wrapped in flags. And all kinds of pilgrims show up because it's an auspicious thing. It's got all this power, and it's believed if that pole is not pulled up evenly, if there's some problem with it, the government will fall. So if you're the, it's the only celebration outside of Kabul where the government sends agents up to give a speech. Whoa, so they take it pretty seriously in Kabul then. Why is that? It is said that it didn't go well um, a month before Dawood was overthrown in 1978, that it wobbled a bit. Wow. That actually brings us full circle um, to where we actually started the interview. But that's the idea if we're looking at Afghanistan, an ancient Persian Zoroastrian holiday, uh, holiday that begins the new year as part of a solar cal- calendar, not the Islamic lunar calendar, but it takes place in the most important Islamic shrine in Afghanistan. It's this melding of, of, of things together. Now, Nauru's is celebrated in Iran, all kinds of Persian places, but in Afghanistan, a country that prides itself on being the most Islamic in the world, its favorite holiday, which not even the Taliban could get rid of, was Nauru's. Thanks so much for that explanation. I think that's actually a perfect point to end the show on, as I think it sums up exactly what we've been talking about today around Afghanistan's makeup and how it functions. Thanks so much to Professor Barfield for joining me today. That concludes the inaugural episode of How My Country Works. For all those who want to learn more about Afghanistan, there's some links in the show notes. And please do check out Professor Barfield's book, Afghanistan, A Cultural and Political History, as there is so much more that we didn't get to cover today. Join us next time, where we'll be exploring the southeastern European country of Albania. 
Please do rate us on your podcast app and recommend us to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Instagram at HowMyCountryWorks, where we'll be sharing some additional facts, stats, interesting tidbits around every country. You can also message us there about any country or anything else around the show. See you next time. And remember to keep asking how my country works.